Lord, we are so very grateful to be together this morning. We thank you for a new day, new mercies, and for the Lord's Day, an opportunity to gather and to worship and to set our focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that today all of our worship is pleasing to you, that our fellowship is sweet and encouraging to each of us. We pray during this hour, Lord, as we seek to understand your word more fully in its uh, in what you have given to us and its application in our lives, Lord, that we uh, would be good students of the Scripture, that we would be faithful to um, to orient our thinking, our hearts, and our minds around what you have revealed, and not what our own flesh desires. We pray also, Lord, for our children and for the other Sunday school teachers, that this would be a great time of learning and that our children would store up your word in their hearts, that they might live all their days by faith in Jesus Christ. And so bless this time, Lord, for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right in. Pastor Dikama is uh, in Canada this weekend, freezing, I'm sure. So we are uh, down one man, but we will handle these questions as we are able. So the first one I'm going to direct to Pastor Smith. And the question is, please explain closed versus open communion. I understand restricting communion to church members is an attempt to make sure somebody doesn't partake in an unworthy manner, but excluding a believer from partaking in communion makes the believer obedient to the church versus obedient to God's command to partake in remembrance of him. Will the church be judged for preventing believers from partaking because they are not church members? Where would a believer partake in that time if not with other believers? This considers a believer who intends to become a member, not a long-term visitor. So essentially a question about what we believe about one needing to be a member of the church in order to partake, not this particular church, but a church, member of a church to partake of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good question. I think uh, this has been a question that from time to time over the years, uh, uh, we've had one or two or three or four or five people that have raised this question and asked this question. It's a good question. I think there can be some confusion on this matter, so I'm glad that it was asked. I'm glad we have the opportunity to, to address it. Um, I think the first, the first thing I would want to comment on, the, the questioner asked about closed versus open communion. So we, we kind of have to get the terminology right, uh, to be clear in our thinking definitions. Um, historically, in the history of Baptists, if you go back to the 17th and 18th centuries, really the issue of closed and open communion had to do with whether Baptist churches would receive into their membership uh, those who were not baptized as believers. Uh, for example, pedo-baptists. And you had some Baptists who would not receive a person into the membership of their church and, and administer the Lord's table to them unless they had been baptized as believers. And you had other Baptists, uh, a few of them, most ba- that was the view of most Baptists, but you had a few of them who would receive into the communion, that is, into the fellowship of the church as a, as a member of the church, those who had a credible profession of faith, but they had been, um, they they still held to a paedo-baptist view of baptism and had never been actually received believer's baptism. So really, to be, I guess, a little bit technical, that's really where that terminology first originates. 
but it has it but it but it has come to mean something different in our day usually when people use the terms closed versus open communion uh they're thinking about the question as to whether uh the communion is administered to uh just those who are members of that particular church that's that's actually observing uh the Lord's supper at that time or do you allow people to partake of the Lord's supper who are not members of your church, but are members in good standing of other Christian churches. And so by that definition, we are an open communion church. We're not a closed, we're not, we don't believe in closed communion. But the questioner is really addressing something that's really kind of outside that scope, because what they're talking about is uh, the question of administering the Lord's table to someone who professes to be a Christian but is not a member of any church anywhere. They're not a part of a church. And uh, I don't know historically what you would actually call that because that has not really been the historical view of any Baptist church that I, I'm aware of, it's, but it has become a common thing today uh, to do that. Um, so I'm not really sure how you would define it or what you would call it historically, but the idea is that you administer the Lord's table, and if there's anybody there who believes that they're a believer, uh, whether they're a member of a church anywhere or not, uh, they may partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, let me clarify what our position is on that. First of all, it's not that we believe that you have to be a member of our church to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. We don't believe that. But we do believe you need to be a member of a church who has a, who's not under church discipline in a church, but has had their profession vetted by a church, and uh, they're a member of a church, and, we, and then they're welcome. It doesn't matter if it's a Pado Baptist church, a Baptist church, whatever church, if it's an evangelical gospel-preaching <coughs> church that they have been, uh, they, they are a member of, they're welcome to partake. But we ask those who, who are not members of a church to refrain from taking the Lord's table, even if that person is a professing believer, not that we're saying you're not a Christian, it's, but there's reasons why we do that. So I wanted to try to explain that. So why, why is that our position? Well, uh, first, I've jotted some of these thoughts down so I could communicate them clearly so it wouldn't be confusing. But first of all, because the, we believe the Lord's Supper is not a personal, private dinner. Obviously, it's not, it's not like, hey, come over this, you know, after church and come over to the house and we'll have a steak and we'll have the Lord's Supper together. We know that's not what we're talking about. It is a, in the scriptures, it's a public church church ordinance that's to be administered in the context of the gathered church, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's to be guarded, as we see there as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We believe it should only be administered to those who have a credible uh, profession of faith and are not under church discipline. Okay, so that's the first reason. And if that's the case, secondly, of course, a person who is not a member of the church, a church is not subject to the discipline of a church, nor can we know that the credibility of their profession has been vetted by a church so that we can accept another church's validation of its credibility. And then thirdly, again, this doesn't mean that we are saying they are not a Christian. They very well may be a Christian. But for the church to be able to reasonably assume in the judgment of charity that <clears throat> the person's profession of being a Christian is credible and to grant to them the privileges of partaking of the ordinances of the church, 
that person must be allow, uh, willing to allow that profession to be vetted by a church, which is not the case if they are not a member of a church. And then furthermore, if the person is not a member in good standing in a church, they are not subject to the discipline of a church. Obviously, there's no such thing as church discipline for unrepentant, scandalous behavior. Uh, discipline, by the way, that it doesn't mean when we, when, when, if a church discipline case gets all the way to the point of excommunication, uh, that doesn't mean that you, know, that you take the person and sit them outside the building somewhere and say you're not allowed to come, but think of excommunicate. Think of communicant. What is a communicant? Someone who partakes of the Lord's Supper. When you excommunicate someone, they, you now withdraw from them the privileges of church membership, which include partaking of the Lord's Supper. They're no longer considered as a, as a, uh, a member because their profession no longer has credibility. Well, there's no such thing in church, as church discipline <clears throat> for unrepentant, scandalous behavior when there is no church membership. You can't discipline someone by removing them from membership and its privileges when there is no church membership. They're not under any subject to any church's discipline. And then I thought, fourthly, think of baptism, for example. Yes, it would be true to say that it is the duty of every Christian to get baptized. But it's not the same as saying that it's the duty of the church to baptize everyone who says that they're a Christian. No, first, their profession needs to be heard by the pastors and vetted, and we must be convinced in the, in the judgment of charity that their profession is credible before we baptize them. And the same would apply with the Lord's Supper. Uh, the, now, the person who asked the question made a couple of statements that I want to comment on. Uh, one, it was said that excluding a believer from partaking in communion makes the believer obedient to the church versus obedient to God's command to partake in remembrance of him. Well, my response to that would be twofold. First, obey Christ and obeying the church are not always mutually exclusive. Uh, particularly when the church is implementing the principles Christ, the head of the church, has given to us by which we are to operate the church. And then secondly, we believe that God has also made it clear in his word, not only that believers should partake of the Lord's Supper, but that believers should partake of the Lord's Supper as members of a church. So a believer who is partaking of the Lord's Supper but neglects or refuses to become a member of a Christian church is not obeying Christ because the two go together. Think again of baptism. Every Christian ought to be baptized. It's every Christian's duty uh, to be baptized. If I'm a believer, I should be baptized. You know, if, I, if I'm refusing baptism, yeah, I'm, I'm disobeying Christ. But that doesn't mean you, you go to some church and you demand that the pastors baptize you. No, obeying Christ's command to be baptized involves making a profession of faith to the church or its leaders that they are able in good conscience to receive as credible before they baptize you. So if you are a believer, yes, you should be baptized. I.e., which means you need to make your profession known to the church for their appraisal so that then the pastors can baptize you with a good conscience. Well, in a similar way, if you are a believer, you're commanded to partake of the Lord's Supper, which means, again, that you need to place your profession under a church's evaluation 
care and accountability so that that church might indeed receive you to the table with a good conscience, okay? And then there was another comment in the question I want to comment on. Uh, The comment was, will the church be judged for preventing believers from partaking of the Lord's Supper because they are not members? And I'm assuming when they ask that question, they they mean members of any church because our, our, our position is not they have to be members of our church. So if what is meant by that is they're not members of any church, will the church be judged for preventing believers from partaking of the Lord's Supper because they are not members of a Christian church? My answer would be, actually, I would fear being judged for allowing folks to partake of the Lord's Supper who are not members of any church. And why do I say that? Because a promiscuous administration of the Lord's Supper ignores the church's responsibility to vet the profession of those who enjoy church privileges. And it also ignores the commands of Christ concerning church discipline, since someone who is not a member of any church is not subject to the discipline of the church. So I hope that is a helpful explanation as to why uh, this is the practice of our church and pretty much the practice of just about every Reformed Baptist church that, that I'm aware of. And... Um, uh, in, again, our practice is actually a form of open communion, not closed communion. If we were practicing closed communion, as it's usually thought of, that would mean we only administer the table through those who are members of our church. But we don't do that. We open the table to those who are members. Now, one, one question is sometimes, like, well, how do you know? you know? Well, we believe all we can do is express this at the Lord's table, who, who we believe is qualified to partake of, of it with us and then we have to leave it up to people's consciences and uh, we can't you know we can't go around and have the deacons you know are you sure you're supposed to be partaking the lord's supper or something like that we we try to make this known we try to you know when we partake the lord's supper we briefly mention these things and then uh you know if someone says well i don't care what you say i'm going to partake the lord's supper anyway well they can deal with that between them and christ but we think they're they're acting wrongly when they do that but we're not going to uh, like throw them in jail or the deacons aren't going to go, wait a minute, you can't do that. So, uh, but, but this is what we, we are convinced is the scriptural manner of um, administering the Lord's table. Yeah. you have anything to add? Just um, the last statement that he made about this is scriptural. Well, he didn't have the time to bring up all the scriptures to validate what he's saying, but you know, in our culture, where you have these mega churches where they don't have membership and it's easy to over time drift into into sloppy thinking about what a church is is for and how it's governed and and so we we have to govern the church by the scriptures and we're accountable as pastors to do that and um pray for us that we don't abuse our power but also that we use our power in the way that the scriptures uh call us to do amen good i don't really have much to add so we'll move on to the next question maybe if anybody yeah is there anyone have anything additional to ask on that covered it all you can uh also i address this when i taught on the lord's supper um from the confession so you can go back and listen to that as well yeah, go ahead, Tom. As far as membership, do you have believers that don't believe you should be 
Yeah. Yeah, okay, so what, what, what he, I think what you're asking is what about someone who's a believer who doesn't believe in formal church membership? <laughs> the concept, right? Right. Yeah, well, that would, that would involve us kind of opening up the whole subject of the doctrine of the church and the basis for which we believe in the reality of church membership, which has been done here a number of times, but all I can say to that, that's not the position of our church. We do believe that there is a distinction between the church universal and the church local, that the New Testament makes a very clear distinction between the two things, that the church universal is the sum of all local churches in the world, uh, all true local churches in the world. And then so, there are some occasions where the word church is used to refer to God's elect from all ages, Old and New Testament. In fact, uh, I think it's somewhere in the area of, we actually, in our, in our new members class, I actually give the figures, I think it's 116 times in the New Testament the word church is used to refer to a specific local churches congregations that are gathered together committed to one another in a particular area and then a much and then there's a smaller number of times that it's used to refer to the church universal so if the church universal is the sum of all true local churches in the world it's not really sufficient to say well I'm a part of the church universal because the church universal is not like a nebulous undefinable thing it is the sum of all true local churches in the world, and one of the ways we become a member of the church universal is by becoming the, a member of a church local. And uh, again, that's not to say that a person is not a Christian, I, but, but, but I believe that's just, a, just really confusion about what the New Testament teaches about the doctrine of the church. And though I think there are some who really have that position who are very sincere believers, and, and uh, we're, we're not we're not able to just compromise on our convictions as, as in our understanding of this because ultimately uh, we answer to Christ, the head of the church. We don't have the right to just do what we think is expedient. We have to try to operate according to what we believe the scriptures teach. And, and so um, regretfully in a situation like that, we would not be able to administer the Lord's table to that person without them becoming a member. Now, that doesn't mean that every church has to have the same way that it recognizes members. Um, but in some way, that person needs to be explicitly, not implicitly, but explicitly committed to a local church and under that church's discipline. And how the, their church does that, if they have people come up and or they keep a role or whatever they do. But in the New Testament, you're... you're Commitment, your involvement in a particular local church is not a kind of implicit, hidden thing. It's explicit. It's known. And you've placed yourself under the discipline of that church. You've allowed your testimony to be vetted by the church and by its leadership and accepted by the church as a, as a part of that fellowship and before you can partake of the Lord's Supper. So um, there you go. All right, next question. I will take this one to start. What do you think about the rapture? Is this a secret event from the second coming? I don't know what to think since some of the pastors I admire believe that the church will be taken out before a great tribulation. Please explain a little about this belief. Okay, 
several qualifiers to this before I directly answer the question. There's a lot of different ideas wrapped up in this. And so um, there's a lot of directions we could go in answering this, but I'll start with the, um, the idea of the signs of the times. And certainly as of late, you've been hearing a lot of that language, the signs of the times. Well, as we read through the Bible, we see uh, sort of a, a present and, and by present, I mean in the time of the writing of the scriptures, a present and a future reality to this idea. Um, and the, the language comes from Jesus' words in Luke 21. He says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the power of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And so we believe that the return of Christ will be preceded by certain signs. For example, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, fulfilling the Great Commission, the conversion of the, le- the elect, um, what the Bible refers to as the great apostasy, um, a, uh, a time of uh, intensified tribulation, um, and the coming of the Antichrist in the midst of many Antichrists. However, and this is very important, these signs must not be thought of as referring exclusively to the time just prior to Christ's return. They have been present in some, uh, in some ways, in many ways, since the beginning of the Christian church and are present even now. Uh, if you read through the text, notice how, oft, notice how often throughout the text there's references to, uh, to now or to soon or uh, references to a time period that the readers of those letters in the scripture wouldn't have read that and thought, well, that must mean in three, four thousand years, the language was very present. And so there's a present reality to this as well. So we live now in times of tribulation. Um, We will continue to live in times of tribulation, but the great tribulation that Jesus refers to in the Olivet Discourse is a time just prior to Jesus' return. That's sort of Satan's last stand, if you will, but it's not a completely new phenomenon. It's just an intensified reality of what we have already uh, seen. And so, with that, we believe that the second coming of Christ will be a single event. That there, there's no scriptural basis for the dividing of Christ's second coming into two different events. This idea that there will be a, a secret coming of Christ, and then after seven years of tribulation, then a physical and present coming of Christ. We understand Christ's return being one single event, and Paul talks about that as well as uh, when the, the trumpet sounds. And it's uh, not a secret thing, but a very visible thing. As Jesus himself said, straighten up and look and see. Uh, this, is, this is happening. The Lord is returning. And so at the time of Christ's return, and the Bible uh, teaches this, there will be a general resurrec- uh, resurrection of both believers and unbelievers. 
Here's what we mean by that. We do not believe that the resurrection of believers and that of unbelievers will be separated by a thousand year uh, span of time. We also do not believe, as some Christians do, that there are many, as some believe, three or four different resurrections. So in addition to that of believers who have died and unbelievers who have died, there's also this idea of a resurrection of saints who have died in the tribulation and uh, believers who have died during a millennial period. So we see no scriptural basis for the separation of events in the resurrection of the dead. Believers and unbelievers will be resurrected at the same time. After the resurrection, believers who are still alive shall be uh, transformed and glorified. The basis for this is what Paul uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so you see the singular event. The trumpet sounds. It's the return of Christ. You see the dead raised to life. You see, uh, you see those who are alive being transformed. And then... He writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, all believers will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is where this idea of a rapture comes in. So this is both, uh, that the, this is referring both to the believers who have just been raised from the dead together with living believers who have been transformed and are glorified. Now, Personally, I do not use the language of rapture because of all of its associations with other theological positions that I do not believe to be accurate. But in essence, uh, if we are to use the language, this is what we mean by it. Many Christians believe that there will be a rapture of of the entire church and the church will be taken up to heaven for seven years while those remaining on the earth will undergo a great tribulation. Others believe that Uh, Christians will remain on the earth for three and a half years of tribulation and then be taken up to heaven and then there will be another three and a half years of tribulation. Others believe Christians will endure seven years of tribulation and then be raptured into heaven at the end of that tribulation. Um, We don't believe any of those ideas. We see no scriptural evidence for this idea of a seven-year period or for the, the transference of the church from earth to heaven during this period of time. Risen and glorified, now hear me out here, risen and glorified believers do not ultimately belong in heaven but on the new earth. And the word translated to meet in 1 Corinthians 4 is a technical term. It was used in the New Testament to describe a public welcome given to the city by uh, sort of this visiting dignitary. So someone would come and they would all go out to welcome him. So people would ordinarily leave the city to meet the distinguished visitor. Then they would go back with him into the city. So on the basis of this analogy... Uh, All Paul is saying here is that raised and transformed believers are caught up in the clouds to meet the descending Lord, implying that after that meeting, they will uh, once again gather together with Christ in the new earth. And so this idea of a secret rapture 
really historically there's there's some debate about it but really most evidence points to um, a time in about 1830 there was a girl by the name of Margaret McDaniel in Scotland uh, who um, was a young girl and she uh, believed that she had a private revelation uh, of this being what uh, the scriptures taught about the the church being taken out of the world and then the world enduring this uh, period of tribulation. Well, that idea was taken up by a man by the name of John Darby, who then popularized it, made a few changes to what she said, and then from there, it really became very popular in the West and especially in America uh, by C.I. Uh, Schofield, who took all of this and put it into his study Bible and all the notes then made reference to these ideas. Um, but really, you don't see anything in church history prior to the mid-1800s uh, of any idea about this sort of secret rapture and the church um, and when that happens and all of this, uh, this idea of tribulation. So um, tied to that then is this idea of uh, the judgment. Many Christians believe there will be separate judgments, but we don't agree. We see scriptural evidence for one day of judgment, which will occur at the time of Christ's return, and all men must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And after that, the final state is ushered in that unbelievers and those who have rejected Christ will spend eternity in hell where believers will spend everlasting glory with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, And so uh, I guess related to this, and I just bring this up, I think many Christians sort of have this idea that we will spend all eternity in some ethereal heaven. uh, But the Bible really teaches this idea that we will live on a new earth. And we will do that with Christ and that we will enjoy the blessings of whatever that new earth is going to be. And I promise it'll be far greater than anything we can think or imagine. Um, and so, um, <clears throat> so yes, on, on the basis of what we see in scripture, on the basis of the history of the church, we reject the idea of some kind of secret rapture and, uh, and really all the ideas tied to that we, we think are um, are. Uh, are not to be found anywhere in the scripture and uh, there's there's much more um, straightforward ways of understanding what some of those texts teach maybe you guys want to add something to that no just say if you the question of the millennium which kind of tied to that if you if you want to look uh, on sermon audio in the series on um, it was actually a series on the atonement I think there's a message that I gave on the, the chapter in the book of Revelation that mentions the thousand-year period where I address these whole questions about what is the millennium and what's it talking about. And uh, that might be something you would be interested in listening to that might be thought-provoking and helpful. So, Great. All right, uh, next question. Um, we'll, we'll get to you in a bit, brother, I promise. I'll pass this one back to Pastor Smith. Uh, what what is the, what is the biblical basis for canceling a church service when Christmas falls on a Sunday? If the answer is none, if the answer is none, where do we draw the line? Would would we ever cancel on Easter? And could we ever consider voting on this as a church? 
Um, well, you know, I think my first response to that question is in part to ask another uh, thought-provoking question, and, and that is what is the biblical basis for having two services on Sunday? And the reason I, I, I ask that question is because we're not really in the realm here of biblical command. Uh, that's not really what the issue is, except for the fact we are commanded to worship God corporately on Sunday, right? Uh, while we're commanded to worship God corporately on the Lord's Day, decisions of this nature, like how many times do we meet? Um, how many hymns do we sing? Uh, how long the sermons last? Um, those kinds of questions are not specifically determined by Scripture. Uh, <clears throat> these are what uh, historically have been called circumstances or circumstantial matters of public worship that are uh, referred to in the first uh, chapter of our confession that are to be regulated, it says, according to the light of nature and the general principles provided in passages like 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, which is the text that they list, where Paul says, let all things be done unto edification and let all things be done decently and in order. And I, I ask uh, Kelly to hand me that because I wanted to read that to you. Um, if you have the... Um, hymn book it has the confession in the back and in the first chapter ooh, that's some small writing there um, ah, I remembered my glasses today yeah in the first chapter um, this is a page 670 Let me see if I'm looking in the right place. Okay, I think what I'm looking for, yeah, okay. If you look at uh, paragraph six, it says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. And, and in the, if you had a, uh, one of the copies of the confession that has the scripture references, that's the reference it gives, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. Uh, let all things be done in edification, all things be done decently and in order. So there, there are, sometimes there are judgment calls, in other words, that have to be made on these kinds of matters, things that the Bible hasn't really given a specific direction about. So there's not always a right or wrong answer. So how then should such decisions be made? Well, the elders uh, have been assigned a certain authority in the church to make such decisions, and they should... It's very important, I think, that they should seek to be sensitive uh, to both the needs and the wishes of the people. But the reality is that the people of God in a given congregation do not always agree uh, about something 
like this in the same way. There can be a variety of opinions. There can be a variety of preferences. In other words, sometimes elders are faced with a decision in which it's impossible to please everyone. And the elders are then in a position of having to make what they believe is the best decision. Well, it was our decision that on this one occasion, uh, as opposed to what is the, the case, 51 Sundays out of 52 in the year, and 52 Sundays in most years, that it might administer more to the edification of the church as a whole if while continuing to worship corporately on the Lord's Day, which we are commanded to do, that we reduced our services on that day to one because of various unique circumstances, including family situations and opportunities our folks find themselves having or faced with on Christmas Eve. So that's why we did that. Now, if we canceled services altogether, I believe we would be disobeying God. We would be disobeying God. But the question of how many services we have on that day is a, it's a circumstance. And, uh, that, uh, and this was our, our judgment on the issue. We also recognized from many conversations with people, there was it's almost as many opinions about it. Well, there couldn't be as many opinions because there's only two options, but <laughs> there were multitudes of divergence of ideas about that. And uh, so, so the buck stops with us, right? We had to make a decision, and that's, that's the reason we chose to do what we did. So I hope that helps. And don't, don't ever take that to think that we don't believe that um, that meeting on the Lord's Day in the frequency that we do, in other words, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, are uh, that one is more important than the other or that uh, we don't find it significant. But uh, there are times when, uh, when that will change. But um, we don't have to worry about this question again until 2033. So we got to... That Nick made because, um, you know, we do we do believe that having two worship services on the Lord's Day ordinarily is 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 reasonable, is to the edification of God's people. Uh, you know, sometimes we wish we could have more than two, because there's so much to teach and so much to learn. And um, but we limit it to two to allow people to have time to go home, to eat, to rest, to come back. And, uh, but don't take, that, don't take what I said to mean that Nick said that we don't think evening worship is important because we do think it is very important and uh, that our members ought to try to be at every worship service. So. Amen. All right. Well, Pastor Faris, you have a very straightforward, quick, easy question to answer uh, for us. What does it mean to be a church member? What is expected of me throughout the week concerning church meetings? Related to our last question, and what about outside of those official meetings? Lastly, with those answers in mind, what does it mean to serve in the church? Okay, you, you can tell that he was joking. Yes. Um, I, I had the privilege last night of reading Sam Waldron's commentary on our confession. Uh, chapter 26 has 15 paragraphs, and... Um, I'm not going to try in four minutes to go through that. Um, Pastor Smith goes over this question in our new members class. Pastor Kennecott is covering it right now in our uh, Sunday school during our study of the confession. So I'm not going to uh, use this time to kind of go through that. But just with the time that I have, I'd like to just maybe um, 
talk about some things on my heart about the church that I think might be helpful. Um, the Lord Jesus calls the church his bride. And what a wonderful husband we have in the Lord Jesus Christ to be his bride. I can think of no greater privilege in life on this planet than to be the bride of Christ, to be called out of darkness, to be born again, to be part of his bride, to be in union with Jesus Christ. What an honor, what a privilege to be part of the church. And he's given gifts to the church. He's given us his word, his Holy Spirit. He's given us pastors and teachers to guide and to lead us. But we live in a fallen world, and we're not in the new heavens and the new earth yet. So there's mixture in the church. Sometimes uh, professors get in that, that don't, they're, they're not the real deal. Their hearts have never been born again. And that, that's because we're human. We can't read their hearts. We listen for a credible profession. And oftentimes, unbelievers can give a credible prof- profession. And, you know, there's an old statement that says 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Sometimes that's true. I, I don't think that's true in this church. As I look out amongst you and I think about our church, I'm very grateful for all, all of you, each one. We do have uh, what Tim Tebow, Tim Tebow would call MVPs, which are the most vulnerable people. We have elderly people that are losing their sight, that are struggling with cancer. We have shut-ins that can't get here. We have people with mental illness and autism. We have people that struggle with depression and all kinds of other ailments. So we as the body of Christ need to love one another and care for one another. The pastors can't do it all. We have to have our head on a swivel and look for those MVPs and to, and to care for them. A, a story that I, that I heard this week that really touched my heart, I was visiting with one of our elderly people, and he said with great delight on his face and smiles that one of the men in the church came to visit him at his home and brought some of his children with a guitar, and they sang a hymn together, and they read the scripture. And I thought, what a wonderful way to serve in the body to train your children by showing them that you're to care for others in the church, and at the same time, caring for an elderly person who's uh, struggling with all kinds of ailments towards the end of his life. And we can multiply those stories. I, 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 I look at your faces, and I know uh, many of you are actively serving, and we need to do better. We need to challenge ourselves and uh, not accept mediocrity and to glorify God with the time that we have. We have responsibilities at work that takes up a lot of our time. We have responsibilities to care for our families and, and, and other responsibilities. So the time that's left to, to serve one another is limited. So we have to be creative. We have to pray. Uh, pray for your elders. Pray for one another. Um, but just remember what an, an awesome privilege it is to be part of the body of Christ, to be the bride of Christ, to live in this fallen world, knowing where we're going, knowing that the victory's already been won. And it should motivate us to really um, live life in a supernatural way, not the way we used to be before we were born again and before God saved us. 
I encourage you to read those uh, 15 paragraphs in chapter 26. Um, we could talk about attendance at all the stated meetings. We could talk about the necessity for prayer. We could talk about so many of those things, but um, all, of the, all of those things that we have in our confession and in the scripture have to go from our mind and, and into our heart and really affect our desires and our behaviors. So with the uh, top of the hour clicking now, I'll stop there. Yeah. So. And, and to not, not get too uh, clinical, because that was a very uh, warm and pastoral way of responding to that. Um, if, you look at our, um, if you look at our constitution as a church, uh, there's a good outline there of what's uh, expected of members of the church. And if you look at the covenant that you have agreed to uphold coming into this church, uh, that outlines uh, some of those things as well. And those are things every time someone comes to join the church, many of you new members within just the last few years, um, we go over all of those things in detail and have discussion about them. And, uh, and so refer back to that. And that's a good thing to be reminded of. And we've actually been talking recently about how can we regularly remind ourselves of our uh, covenant as members of the church uh, so that we're all reminded of that um, and we're regularly keeping that uh, at the forefront so we can be faithful to uphold the vow that we've made as members of this congregation. Amen. 30 yeah. seconds. <clears throat> uh, one thing I think too to keep in mind is um, you know sometimes we have folks who've been coming for for many many months we don't we don't even talk to so we don't even have membership interviews with someone unless they've been coming for a significant period of time to make sure that they they you know they know this is the church they want to be a part of but sometimes those are folks who have come out of either they're new christians or they've come out of circumstances where they've really not been taught a lot about uh, church life and uh, maybe they haven't been coming regularly say on the sunday to the sunday evening worship services and never never cons never even thought that that was any that was you know that's just something they've never done most churches here don't have evening worship services so so when we have our membership interviewed uh, we go over all that and we ask them you know are you able to one of the one of the commitments of being a member of our church is that you come to the state you're you're willing to commit to come to the stated meetings of the church unless there's uh providential hindrance or you have a working situation that is a work of necessity or mercy that would keep you from doing that or sickness and so we always talk about that and we we don't ever re receive anyone into the membership of the church who hasn't made that commitment and i want to make sure that you understand that and uh but then sometimes that happens and we we start noticing over time that someone begins to kind of drift and they're not really being faithful uh to the stated meetings of the church and that's where we have to to get involved pastorally, and you need to get involved pastorally in a kind way to exhort them and to remind each other of the commitments that we have made. Um, but we also have to be careful that we don't want to be the kind of church where the only people who can be members of, of our church are really high-level, highly mature Christians. Uh, because there are going to be Christians in, your in our church that are all different levels of maturity. There are going to be some people who are just new believers. They don't know anything. Well, that's the way it ought to be. And so sometimes there's the kinds of issues that crop up in church life that are signs of life rather than death. You know, when it's dead and then everybody's like a robots and we all follow the, connect the dots, 
But when there's life happening in a church, yeah, it creates pastoral issues. It creates these you know, things that come up that have to be, and that's part of church life that we all are, are to be committed to. And again, as our brother said, not just the pastors, but every single one of us have a responsibility for one another's souls. Amen? Amen. Add yep. something real quick mm-hmm. to what he said. Um, the abuse of power in the Christian churches across the world is a real problem. And, and not exercising our power the way we should is also a problem in many churches. So please pray for us that we will um, be under shepherds of Christ in a way that uses our power um, the way Christ would use it. That's all. Great. And if a pastor ever tells you they need 30 seconds to say something, just quadruple the time and know that's going to be about it. So, all right, Pastor Faris, can you close us in prayer? Pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we sense our great honor and privilege to be your children, to have access to your throne because of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the church. We thank you for our head. We thank you for the many gifts, your word and your spirit. We thank you for one another. We thank you for our elders and our deacons, and we pray that you would help Emmanuel Baptist Church to live for your glory and for your honor, and that you would, that you would get much praise and worship from us and help us to add to our numbers through love and evangelism. All for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.